I had a mixed experience of our little greeting thing, because I was walking around and nobody said hello to me <laughs> when I was holding little Teresa. <laughs> so the question of the morning, following 80's um, sobering message, is why do we keep being mean to each other, right? We're social beings, we can't not be together, but we're also, as individuals, competitive and rivalrous. So we keep producing these systems of human relating that have stratification, hierarchy, dominance, where some have power, and they use that power to suppress others. And these systems maintain themselves, right? We structure our systems so that they perpetuate themselves usually until some disruption comes along. The disruption is often in the form of a crisis. It could be a natural disaster. It could be prolonged natural trouble like drought that produces famine. It could be political unrest, rebellion, war, military conflict. Something comes along that disrupts whatever it is that's producing the structure. So in a famine, for example, or a natural disaster, the thing that enables some to be more powerful than others is leveled. In a natural disaster, if there's famine, everybody is equally hungry, right? Or in a war, the system is disrupted or destroyed in a way that affects everybody so that the differences that used to be able to be maintained become more difficult to perpetuate. Sometimes what causes the disruption isn't a bad thing, it can be good. If there is a scarcity, and some people have privileged access to what's scarce, but all of a sudden a resource comes along that does away with the scarcity, we're all equal, right? So if in our fantasy we have plentiful energy that's climate neutral, and so we all have equal access to resources. What has produced stratification goes away. And in those times of disruption, this class-based system in which you and I are pegged in certain strata that have differences in power and the ability to be in power, the ability to dominate, when that goes away, Human societies are transformed into a different thing called a crowd. Other terms for it can be a mob. There's this moment of kind of scary, chaotic, social energy, right? And you feel it if you've been in them, if you've read about them, you feel both the scariness, because we don't like being in these unstable situations. We don't like being in this sort of chaotic, high-energy state where we're all sort of the same. We need our differences. We need to exist. We need to know who we are in the system, whether it's higher or lower. But in that state, almost everybody detects the possibility of something different, something magical, not just reverting to business as usual in human systems, human systems of hierarchy and dominance, but there's the possibility of doing human social gathering in a completely different way. 
where we get rid of all the rules and the things that structure us, what we're used to, the things that produce systems of inequity. Sometimes we even try to implement these, right? We will implement new rules and laws coming out of a crisis that we think will protect against the injustices and the inequities, the possibility of some people asserting unfair dominance over others. But almost always we start to revert pretty quickly. You know, history is rife with examples. We have the Civil War, this huge conflict that produces a pretty dramatic leveling of privilege and power and prestige. Most everybody is equally decimated by the conflict. Coming out of it, we think we can produce a system that dignifies all humans equally, including those of African descent, which changes last for about 10 minutes before we revert to Jim Crow. World War II, all the men go off to war, the women rise up into things that they were formerly prohibited from doing and realize, hey, we have capabilities that were suppressed. And then the men come back from the war, right? And so, as we come to our story today, to Jesus, in our um, our Lenten theme is renounce and announce no and yes. Renouncing a particular way of being, a value, a human attribute or trait, and announcing something new that we are putting in place instead of that. Saying no to what was and yes to what will be. I am proposing that Jesus was aware of this human propensity. And that Jesus is saying no to, he is renouncing a class-based system and saying yes to something that I will describe and will call community. That Jesus, in that moment of disruption, has in mind to produce a different way of human structuring that does away with all of the things that cause us to produce harm against each other. So... We'll get a taste for it. We'll enter into it in the account of the life of Jesus that's told in Mark. And I'm going to begin with this. This is an introduction to our story. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude followed from Galilee, as well as from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond Jordan and the environs of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, hearing what things he does, came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should be standing by on account of the crowd, so that they should not press in upon him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions fell upon him in order to touch him. And the impure spirits, when they gazed upon him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the son of God. And he gave them many stern admonitions that they should not make him manifest. So Jesus is the great disruptor, right? <clears throat> he comes along, I, I don't know if you, how many of you are familiar with Charlie Brown? You know, I'm kind of dating myself. But one of the characters in Charlie Brown was Pigpen. Who, Pigpen went along and he just had this sort of cloud of dust behind him everywhere he went. Well, Jesus is like that. Jesus is the great disruptor. He just brings disruption with him wherever he goes just by being there. 
he is threatening to all systems. So in part because of what he does. When he, for example, just brings healing everywhere in his day and age, sickness and infirmity would have been something that produced stratification. Jesus does away with that. As a part of his mission, often connected with the healings that he brings, he just liberally dispenses forgiveness. Right, So sin and sinfulness, the degree of badness, how affected by that you were, would have affected, would have affected your standing in society. And also who administrated the sin system. And so when Jesus says, yeah, that whole construct is gone, it's profoundly disruptive to what would have stratified society. And then there's the possibility that Jesus could be the hero sent by God to rescue the people of Israel. The possibility that Jesus could be actually the son of God. And so if that's the case, and people are increasingly believing that it is, he just obliterates all other sources of authority. If he is God in the room, whoever you are and whatever standing you think you have shrinks to nothing in the presence of Jesus. So he is profoundly disruptive and threatening to all systems. And people throng to him. He has a crowd. He gets people from all the strata of society. Wealthy, poor, religious elite, fishermen, laborers, righteous, sinful. All coming to Jesus all their differences diminished in that crowd. Which turns out to be somewhat upsetting for those who inhabit the class-based stratified systems. So the story goes forward. And it says this. He comes to a house. And again, a crowd assembles so that they are not able to eat a loaf of bread. <laughs> I don't know what this is. This is. Multiple times Jesus gets in trouble because the room is so full that nobody can eat. Like that's sort of a signal event. <laughs> that this has gone too far. <laughs> so that they are not able to eat a loaf of bread. And his relatives, hearing this, went out to seize him forcibly for they said he is beside himself. It literally means he is out of his mind. He is insane. And the scribes, so here we get the religionists coming. The scribes coming down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul in him. That's like a really bad demonic thing. And he exercises demons by the archon of the demons. And calling them over, he spoke to them in parables. So Jesus begins to address them. But so what happens is representatives from two very archetypal class-based systems come to suppress Jesus. So the first is his family, and the second is religion. And they use a tool. Okay, so in a class-based hierarchical system of dominance, those who have power have access to tools to institute suppression, to maintain the system as it is. One of them is that you get to label bad people. You have terms that you can attach to them, and when you attach those terms, it gives you certain rights in the system for how to treat them, for how to suppress them. Typically, that include using violence. And so, so the family, 
Very typical classist system, clearly defined roles, system of power, some people can suppress others. The family says he's insane. The religionists say he's evil. He is a personified evil being. So they're using pretty straightforward methodologies in a classist-based system to produce adherence. And so the first thing that Jesus does, I'm not going to read this because it, he speaks in a parable, which is just a Bible word for a riddle. He speaks to them in a parable, essentially saying to those in religious power, you think I'm the paragon of evil, you are the ones who are actually inhabiting you know, a really bad practice in besmirching what God is doing through me. So he talks to them. And then we come back to the family. It says, his mother and brothers come. And standing outside, they sent word to him, summoning him. And a crowd was seated around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are standing outside looking for you. And in reply, he says to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around at those sitting in a circle about him, he says, look my mother, and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, this one is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't know about you, but before even beginning to tease apart what it is Jesus is doing, I feel the momentousness of this. It feels seismic, consequential, a huge shift that Jesus is producing. It doesn't seem like he's done it with a lot of forethought. It's just happening in the room, in the moment. He hasn't planned this out. But here come his family. <laughs> I mean, we all belong to families, right? And families have rules for behavior. And, you know, normally you kind of go along swimmingly until you violate the rules for behavior. Typically, you realize what the rules are when somebody from the outside, oh, say, a spouse comes in. <laughs> it begins to violate the rules. My wife from her Jewish family begins hugging. <laughs> my, my very Dutch emotionally repressed mother and father, <laughs> who now hug, you know, liberally. She won. <laughs> but so here comes the family of Jesus. Everybody anticipates that they'll win. It's reported multiple times, even the writer. You know, we start the story, his family came, and then Jesus deals with the religionists, and then it says his family is there, and his family is calling for him. And the people in the room say, um, your family is calling for you. You know, and so will the family win? Will they assert dominance? Will Jesus capitulate to this system of suppression. And so it's like in the moment he says, well, actually, I'm going to do a little social restructuring here. I'm going to call you my mother and my sister and my brother, and then we'll just move on from there. Right? It's amazing what he's doing. So if you think about some of the specifics. So he's inhabiting these class-based systems who by rights can assert dominance over him. 
<clears throat> one of the primary differences between both the family-based system and the religious-based system is that you have no choice either about being in it or about what your role is in it. You know, if, if you're in a family, you're in it, and your role is assigned, and your role comes with very precise rules governing what you can and can't do, who you have control over, what you're, how you're allowed to behave towards each other. In the religious system of this day, at least, everybody was a part of it. You didn't have a choice about being in it or not, it's just who you were in it. And being in it, you were subject to authority. But so Jesus, the first difference is that his new organization is completely voluntary. It's just those who choose to be in the room. We're all choosing to be in this room together. That's who is in. That's who I'm defining my family by. You know, and there's this, he says, those of us who do the will of God. And so immediately I think, oh, here's the new rule. This is a thing that Jesus is producing to structure us. How well we obey the will of God, who does it and who doesn't. I don't think that's what's going on at all. Right? Because remember, there was no conflict before the people from outside came. Everybody's just happily gathered in the room. The only reason the conversation is happening is the systems of dominance, the systems of hierarchy cannot tolerate what's going on in the room. And so they try to suppress it. And so Jesus is just saying, yeah, we're all just here out of choice. And so what it does is it dignifies the choosing of the individuals in the room. It says to each individual, instead of just being an object or a pawn in the system with a prescribed role, your choosing, your volitionalness, and all that went into that is valued here. That is centered. Your individual voice is valued. There's also the clear, I think, implication, and it's almost, it's pretty explicit, Jesus is not just saying, please leave us alone. Jesus is saying to those in the room and those outside, we don't do things in the way that you're doing them. We don't assess for adherence. We don't use violence to suppress dissent. We don't engage in those practices in this room. And so we get the start of what I am calling community. Jesus doesn't use that word, and so I'm just helping him out 2,000 years later. <laughs> I know what you wanted to call it, Jesus. <laughs> and it's like, I, th I think it's so, I, I'm just going with it. Community is this funny word, right? We all know that that's what we want. We just intuitively feel the betterness of community. And so we call things, we're, we're sanctuary community church. We're not sanctuary church of the dominance of the hierarchy. <laughs> you know, nobody would come to that. <laughs> we intuitively think it's better. When you have organizations who have customers or clients, you just want to form them into a community. You want them to be a community, to call them a community, even if they're not. We know it's better. And so you can put up a slide, the first slide. I put up a couple of slides. Actually distinguishing a class-based system from community, people have thought about it, but it's hard. So this is what I've come up with from my reading and my interaction with the Bible. So in a class-based system, belonging is mandatory. You have no choice. Belonging is formalized, so there are rules that govern who's in and who's out and how you get in. 
Everyone is classified. You all have a role. Uh, there's a hierarchy of power. Differences are monetized. And what I mean by that is every class-based system has something that is at the center of what is valued. And depending on how much of that you have, whether it's something of identity or of privilege or of a resource, that determines your value in the system. Uh, there's an enforced unity of thought and belief. Non-adherence is punishable, often with violence. Every individual is objectified, two-dimensional. You know, who you are is your role. The benefit of belonging is survival, protection, and the possibility of power. And what's paramount in the system is perpetuation of the structure. So if you contrast that, you can put up the next slide. In a community, belonging is voluntary. Belonging is informal, right? It's pretty much self-defined. You identify whether you belong or not. No one is classified. There is no dominance. Differences are dignified but value-free. There's a central unifying feature that's diversely embodied. There's no assessment of adherence. There is no violence. Every individual is centered and enlivened. The benefit <laughs> is freedom, love, maturing, and discovery. And it's the values of the community that are paramount. So that, to me, is a pretty different way of structuring human groups. And I think Jesus was all in with this. In my Christian upbringing, what we paid most attention to, we were in the season of Lent as we approached the cross, Easter, things like that, was the kind of eternal cosmic stuff. Salvation, undoing the consequences of sin, eternal life. When you watch Jesus, so much of what he was about that I missed because of that was this was how hard it is to produce community. It hardly ever happens. And so you see all these little moments of Jesus where every single interaction, this is in play. So for example, when he saves individuals from their plight in their context, in their class-based system, he saves Zacchaeus. He saves the woman apprehended by the angry religious men, caught in adultery, shall we stone her? He saves the man who was born blind and who, because of his healing, is vilified by the religious establishment. I always think, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's lovely for those people. I'm so happy for them. And that's kind of where I stop. But what Jesus is doing is a demonstration of social restructuring in that community that he wants me to witness 2,000 years later. Oh, that's how I am supposed to treat somebody like that. That is how we do social relating here. That is how we think of people and how we interact with people. He confronts us all the time with his disciples. They cannot conceive of a different way of doing human structuring. They just anticipate a different currency. The currency in the new way with Jesus in power is proximity to Jesus. Right? The closer to Jesus you are, the more power you have. So you get to assert dominance. <laughs> you know, the, if these people aren't with us, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on them? You know, like, no. <laughs> and, and all the debates, who's the greatest? How close do we get to you? And so Jesus is just always like, you have to become like children. The least is the greatest. The greatest is the least. When I wash your feet, it isn't just to make you really uncomfortable. 
It's to show you how you completely dignify everything about the other. And that this is the glue, this way of loving that holds us together in this new society. There's a moment with Pilate. So as Jesus is approaching the cross, he's being interrogated by Pilate, who's kind of the archon of the classist-based system of life. He's the representative of Rome. Rome is the oppressor of Israel and of the Jewish people. And Pilate says to Jesus in a moment, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, he gives this classic sort of Jesus non-answer, well, you say I am. You know, and I think what's going on, everybody is disturbed by Jesus and deeply disturbed. I think in part because of this, because Jesus isn't just trying to take over He's trying to institute a new way of doing human social relating that nobody gets and that everybody is uncomfortable with. But the only thing Pilate can conceive of is you're in so much trouble with your people because you're trying to inhabit a role of power that they don't want you to. And so Jesus, as he hears this, it's one of these moments where he's thinking, we just have nothing in common. You cannot conceive of what I'm trying to do. It is incomprehensible. It is nonsense to you. The only reason you can think of for why I'm here is that I'm trying to you know, launch a coup and take over for myself. And so Jesus just says, well, that's how you would see me, isn't it? You know. And then there's the resurrection. So Jesus tries this thing. I think it's, it's at least a significant reason why he is executed. Like all the systems of the world, rise up and say, no, thank you. We would like to continue on with business as usual. And so Jesus is squashed for about 10 minutes. And then he comes back to life. And when you read about him post-resurrection, he is the most lighthearted, kind of liberal, liberated, liberal too, yes. (laughs) Liberated guy you'll ever encounter. And I think a part of what's going on for Jesus, so you and I, as we encounter these systems of oppression, they're super depressing because they win so often. And we kind of give up. We think, can we actually produce not just justice or equity, but this alternate system of human relating that is kind and loving and generous and that dignifies each individual voice and where there's no scrutiny, there is therefore now no condemnation, All these things packaged in a human community that we would want. And we say, is it possible? But here is Jesus, alive. The chief cornerstone, the one the builders have rejected is the chief cornerstone for this new human social construct. And Jesus is always alive. He cannot be suppressed again. You and I can always attach ourselves to him as the one from whom to build out this kind of interaction, this kind of human social structuring. So how it works for me, and I'll say this in closing, um, I tether myself to Jesus. I really see in him this practice, this desire to produce an alternate form of human social relating that we are calling community. I see him committed to it. I see him embodying it, teaching me how to do it. I experience it here 
We practice it, we rehearse it, we put into place. All of our groups are governed by these kinds of ethics. To the degree that we're not, we see that and try to change. We rehearse it every time we read that opening statement here, right? Packaged in it are these kinds of values, so I hear it, I inhabit it, I breathe it in, I feel it. I remember the first time we, <laughs> we together declared this to be a condemnation-free zone. It was one of these moments, it's like just strangely subversive, right? It felt a little bit like, can we do that? Is that okay? And can we function? Don't we need condemnation? Even condemnation light, right? <laughs> we, we, need, uh, we need to be able to do that kind of... We just said, no, we're not going to do that. And it felt invigorating and freeing and enlivening and so good, so right. And so what I find now is that I don't want to inhabit groups where this is not the case, where these are not the governing principles. I feel it, I chafe at it, it rubs me the wrong way. And so in places now where I have influence to produce human group social interactions, I try to structure them, and it's, un, it's almost unthinking. I only realize I have to declare it when I realize that other people, that, that is not their practice of groupness. That is not what they're used to. So when I want to implement a group in places where I have influence, and there's the absence of scrutiny, there's non-adherence, there's voluntary participation, all of these kinds of things, and I realize, oh, that's not what I was used to once upon a time. That's not what the people in the room here are used to. I declare it, and I name it. And it produces a way of being that's remarkable, that's just delightful, that's different, that's lovely, that's life-giving, right? I sit with Jesus in that room from this story, all of us there together, all of us voluntarily, all of us inhabiting this way of being. So that is my invitation to us, and I think Jesus' invitation to us too, to put before us to really, really do it, this alternate way of structuring how we relate to each other that we are calling community. So the band can come forward as we get ready for uh, the remainder of our service. I'm just going to bring us into a moment of prayer and reflection. Invite Jesus to awaken in us this desire to attune us to what he is doing, to invite us to participate in that, to say yes to it, to experience the goodness of it, and to carry it with us where we go. So Jesus, we just do inhabit that room. We feel the subversiveness of it. Like it just sounds so sort of straightforwardly good, but does go so against the grain. We're grateful that you have vision for it. Show us where it can be a possibility for us personally and in the places where we have influence, something we can inhabit here and bring out into the world around us. Just come to us in this moment, Jesus, and speak to us.